Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Ukraine's first lady addressing Congress today as Russia continues its war. The Pentagon's now taking more action. The Senate attempts to alter a presidential election law. What's the role of the vice president every January 6th? This bill's supposed to clear that up. Ballots still being counted for Maryland's primaries and Trump's endorsement put to the test in the state. The race for governor is front and center. A Pulitzer Prize investigation over. The board responds to complaints made by former President Trump, but the press isn't losing this one. President Biden signals he'll single-handedly take momentous climate action. This as he loses a key Democratic vote to advance his climate agenda. How should the U.S. respond to the Chinese Communist Party after it threatened forceful measures if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan? We dig deep on the issue. NBA star Andrew Wiggins made his first All-Star team and won a championship this past year. Yet now regrets getting vaccinated, a requirement to play. As the war in Ukraine enters its sixth month, Ukraine's first lady today made a plea before the U.S. Congress for more aid. What's she showing lawmakers and what's the Pentagon announcing today on the war in Ukraine? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Standing in front of U.S. lawmakers on Wednesday, Ukraine's first lady asking the U.S. to send more weapons and air defense systems to her homeland. Weapons that would not be used to wage a war on somebody else's land, but to protect one's home and the right to wake up alive in that home. Olena Zelenska began her 15-minute speech by showing photos of Ukrainian kids killed by Russian airstrikes, asking... No more missile strikes. Is this too much to wish for? She also thanked the U.S. for the billions of dollars in aid the U.S. has delivered to Ukraine. While Russia kills, America saves. And you should know about it. We thank you for that. The speech in Congress comes as Zelenska is on a high-profile visit to Washington this week, during which she was greeted by President Biden and the U.S. First Lady. It also comes right as the Pentagon on Wednesday announced another package of military aid to Ukraine, including more rocket systems. It will include four more HIMARS advanced rocket systems, which the Ukrainians have been using so effectively and which have made such a difference on the battlefield. And since the start of Russia's invasion, the U.S. has spent roughly $6.1 billion on military aid to Ukraine. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Now to election news. In an attempt to reform the way our presidential votes are counted, senators from both sides of the aisle are pushing for a change to the electoral count process. Would the vice president be able to reject electoral votes, as former President Trump once suggested Vice President Pence could do? A bipartisan bill was introduced in the Senate today. It would reform the Electoral Count Act of 1887. It also aims to clarify the role of the vice president in certifying election results. According to the proposed bill, the vice president has only a ceremonial role in the electoral process. The bill says the vice president cannot solely accept or reject results. 
During the 2020 election, then-President Trump suggested that Vice President Pence could reject the electoral votes submitted by some states. The bill would also raise the threshold for objection to a state's electoral votes. In order for an objection to be filed, it would need at least one-fifth of all members of both the House and Senate. Right now, only one member from each chamber is needed. The Senate will hold a hearing on the bill in the next few weeks. And Maryland voters took to the polls to elect nominees for U.S. House and Senate seats and governor. Trump-endorsed gubernatorial candidate Dan Cox has the lead over his opponent, who was endorsed by Maryland's current Republican governor. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the projected results. The projected winners are in for Maryland's primary races. The race for governor is at front and center. The main question is whose endorsement carried more weight in the state, former President Trump or current Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Based on the results, Trump seems to be more popular among Republicans in the state. His endorsed candidate Dan Cox taking a 16% lead over his opponent Kelly Schultz, who's described as a more moderate Republican. Do you think that your campaign has appealed to enough traditional Democrats and moderate Republicans to carry you through the general election? Absolutely, yes. You know, we're the only candidacy that's running to give the freedom back to every single Marylander. So when you look at Prince George's County, when you look at Baltimore City, when you look at Montgomery County, there are large, large portions of Democrats that are tired of the mask mandates. They're tired of the vaccine passport. Attendees at Cox's victory party told NTD his projected win is the result of a grassroots campaign and voters craving to restore freedom. The grassroots efforts for, uh, you know, Dan Cox has been big groundswell big groundswell. Cox will now face Democrat primary winner projected to be Wes Moore. Moore holds a 10% lead over Tom Perez, but to take the victory, Moore must survive the mail-in ballot count. 170,000 mail-in ballots have yet to be counted due to state law. Mail-in ballot counting begins on Thursday morning. Other projected wins in the state are for Maryland's U.S. Senate and House seats. Current Democrat Senator Chris Van Hollen won by a landslide and is expected to hold down his Senate seat. Democrat Heather Miser is leading in Maryland's first district with around 70 percent of the vote. And in District 4, Democrat Glenn Ivey is expected to take his party's nomination. These two seats are expected to stay blue, but District 6 is a toss-up. Republican Neil Parrott is projected to take on current Democrat Congressman David Trone this November. And this is one seat that Republicans are eyeing to flip in the U.S. Congress. Traditionalist Democrats are fed up with what's going on. And we had a woman who was a Democrat come up and start talking to us. She said, if he wins the primary, she said, when I come back in November, I'm voting for Dan Cox. I think, you know, basic rights, you know, that, that we enjoy as Americans are still there. And I think the majority of people, they might not want to come out and say it, but they still believe in those things. Final results will be announced in the coming days. Mail-in ballots are still being counted and will be accepted until July 29th. Reporting from Emmitsburg, Maryland, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And Democrat mega-donor George Soros is watching the Texas governor's race. He recently donated seven figures to help Democrat Beto O'Rourke try to unseat Republican Governor Greg Abbott. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Billionaire George Soros has donated $1 million to Democrat Beto O'Rourke, who's running for governor in Texas. Records filed with the Texas Ethics Commission published Tuesday show Soros donated the sum in June to the Beto for Texas Political Action Committee. That's according to The Hill. 
O'Rourke's campaign confirmed the donation to the outlet. The candidate has benefited from laws in Texas that allow uncapped campaign donations. According to filings, O'Rourke has received a number of donations over six or seven figures. 91-year-old Soros frequently supports progressive causes. Soros handed over his donation to Democracy PAC. He set it up in 2019. It's his main political action committee to support Democrats. Matt Palumbo, author of The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros, says the billionaire funds many left-wing groups through his Open Society Foundations. Palumbo told Epic TV's Facts Matter program that Soros' foundation claims to promote democracy and individualism. But in reality, Palumbo says it supports a more radical agenda. So how does the Texas governor race stand so far? According to a report by the University of Houston's Hobby School of Public Affairs, Republican Governor Greg Abbott leads O'Rourke by 5% among likely voters. The report says Abbott leads at 49% to O'Rourke's 44%. 5% are undecided, and 2% intend to vote for libertarian Mark Tippetts. According to the report, more than 9 out of 10 voters for both Abbott and O'Rourke are certain about their vote choice while 5% of Abbott voters and 8% of O'Rourke voters say they might change their mind between now and November. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Now to federal elections. In 2017, two newspapers reported that the Trump campaign was linked to Russian interference during the 2016 presidential race. And for that, they each received a Pulitzer Prize. But should they now return their prizes? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. For three years, former President Donald Trump called on the Pulitzer Prize board to take back top honors awarded to the Washington Post and New York Times in 2018. Both outlets reported on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Reports that Trump says are disinformation based on a false link between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign. But the board has decided the prizes will stand. In a statement, the board said information contained in the submitted articles hadn't been proven false by any new facts after the prizes were awarded. Hans Monka, an investigative journalist who's reported extensively on what he calls the Russia collusion narrative, disagrees with the board's decision. My immediate response is that they should have rescinded those prizes. I've gone through the articles that the Pulitzer board cited, and there are a lot of problems there, and they haven't addressed those problems. Pulitzer Prize spokesperson Marjorie Miller explained in an email to NTD the reviewers only looked at 20 stories reported by the outlets in 2017. She said in the email, of course reviewers were aware of subsequent news events, but as the statement said, no facts emerged to discredit the reporting in the stories. The prizes stand. Monka thinks the reviewers ignored relevant facts reported after 2017. He said the New York Times was more careful in its reporting, but still relied on inaccurate information. For example... They really focus on, is uh, for which they certainly should withdraw, is the, uh, the Trump Jr. meeting with the Russian lawyer that everyone's heard about, the Trump Tower meeting. So there's a bunch of articles in the Pulitzer Board citations that, well, they cite as being so brilliant, where um, they, they talk about that meeting. Well, as it turns out, that meeting was a complete, you know, nothing burger. On the other hand, the Washington Post, he said, should withdraw a lot of its articles. And if you look at the dates of when they published their articles and what those articles said, much of it is now debunked. For example... The very first story they cite is um, a February um, 
2017 story about General Flynn, the fact that General Flynn is supposed to have lied about sanctions. Well, we now know that General Flynn never, ever mentioned sanctions. <laughs> that was just never discussed uh, when he spoke to the Russian ambassador on the phone. So, of course, that, that basically disproves the entire story. The Washington Post said in an email to NTD that it had no comment. The New York Times said in an email to NTD it didn't have anything further to add to the board's decision. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. President Biden is pushing for climate change action. This is after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said he would not vote for a bill that included certain taxpayer-funded climate initiatives. Here's the president earlier today. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action, notwithstanding their incredible action. Biden's initiatives did not include declaring a national emergency that was pushed by activists. The White House said today's executive actions would create a wind energy area in the Gulf of Mexico that could power over 3 million homes. Biden also announced $2.3 billion in funding for communities most impacted by the extreme heat. And more executive actions will be announced in the coming days. The president also criticized Republicans for refusing to support his climate plan, but didn't mention Senator Manchin, who rejected a legislative climate package amid concerns over inflation. The West Virginia senator said additional funds for climate change would add to the financial burden of everyday Americans. And turning now to Beijing, where the Chinese Communist Party issued its most recent warning to the U.S. They said if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi were to visit Taiwan, they would take forceful measures. She's reportedly planning to go. So how should the U.S. handle this interaction with its biggest geopolitical rival? To look into this development, I spoke with Grant Newsham who's a senior fellow at the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies and the Center for Security Policy, and also a retired Marine colonel. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Now, the Chinese Communist Party has threatened other countries openly many times, so it's nothing new. But is there anything special about their threats to Nancy Pelosi? Oh, not really. Uh, I would say this is what the Chinese do, is they always complain and they, as you said, threaten. Um, if there is any sort of difference in this case, it's not because of Nancy Pelosi being the person going to Taiwan. Uh, I would say it's because the Chinese Communist Party is in a fix. Uh, it's got a dangerous economy. It's, it's unsettled. Um, they got huge debt problems. And there's a psychological uh, sort of problem in China of people who, the average citizen, who seem to be having some doubts about uh, the stability of their financial system, their economic system, their own savings. Uh, so that is something that may actually uh, sort of shape uh, Chinese leadership's thinking and their behavior. Uh, so that's maybe the bigger concern for me. It's the, the, the position the Chinese Communist Party leadership finds itself in, uh, not so much the fact that uh, Speaker Pelosi is going to Taiwan. Uh, so that would be my take on it, because uh, she's not the first uh, Speaker of the House to go to Taiwan. Uh, Newt Gingrich went uh, some years ago, uh, and prominent Americans have gone to Taiwan regularly. Uh, so this isn't all that out of the ordinary, and she may not even be Speaker uh, come November if the Republicans take over. And why do you think she's going at this time? Oh, well, she said she was going to go, I think it was back in April, and then she got the, the Chinese virus, uh, it was said, and couldn't go. So I think she's just 
keeping her promise. Uh, she's been a fairly strong supporter of Taiwan, actually, for much of her career, uh, at least since 2000 or so. Uh, so this is, it doesn't look like political grandstanding to me. Uh, it just looks like something that uh, Nancy Pelosi thought was the, the right thing to do. And we'll see if she actually does go. The U.S. is determined to help Taiwan maintain its um, security. And why is that? Well, Taiwan is particularly important for a couple reasons. One is uh, for its strategic geography. Uh, if Taiwan comes under Chinese control, uh, China will have broken the so-called first island chain, which goes from Japan down to Taiwan, to the Philippines, down to Malaysia. And if it, China takes Taiwan, it then has free access into the Pacific, can go north and surround uh, Japan, it can go south and isolate Australia. Uh, so from that perspective, it's very, it's important. Uh, but also think of the message if Taiwan goes under, goes under Chinese control. It's showing the world that uh, America could not keep 23, 24 million uh, free, free Taiwanese free. Uh, the U.S. military couldn't do it. U.S. financial and economic pressure couldn't do it. U.S. nuclear weapons couldn't do it. So who in the region or even globally is going to accept American promises or believe, uh, believe the Americans after that happens? So that is immensely important for the Americans that it does uh, keep Taiwan free. This is genuinely an existential uh, struggle between uh, freedom and really, the, I'd have to say, the, the forces of darkness or totalitarianism if you want a more precise word. Do you think China will invade Taiwan? Oh, I think it's on the menu. I think if Taiwan does not give up uh, and agree to sort of go however unwillingly into the unloving embrace of the Chinese Communist Party, I think that the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, they will indeed uh, use force against Taiwan. Uh, when that will happen, well, the experts uh, argue about that, but I would suggest maybe that any time after 2023, 2024, it uh, just might happen. But Taiwan is uh, really in a di very difficult spot, and the Chinese are very serious uh, when they say they want it back, uh, even though they've never actually controlled Taiwan or it's never been part of the People's Republic of China. Uh, so as I would take them very seriously, they'd prefer to get it without fighting. Uh, and are trying to isolate and strangle Taiwan right now. Uh, but if necessary, I think use of force, a so-called kinetic option, uh, I think that very much is, is on the, the list of options uh, for the Chinese communists. And do you think the U.S. will defend Taiwan, say, send in troops? I think so. Uh, as I noted, if America doesn't, America's reputation and its position in Asia is finished and its position globally similarly finished. Uh, so I think the Americans will recognize just how uh, important Taiwan is. I think they already know. Uh, but sometimes it takes a sort of a disaster or an impending disaster to wake up uh, enough of the United States and its leadership in particular uh, to, to do what it needs to do. Uh, but China, the Chinese communists, would not be the first uh, totalitarian dictatorship to have made a mistake to miscalculate uh, the willingness of the Americans and free people to defend themselves. And it never has had a happy ending uh, for the totalitarians who make that miscalculation. Uh, so they you know, hopefully will not uh, sort of underestimate American resolve on Taiwan's behalf.
but it's up to the Americans, of course, uh, to demonstrate that commitment in clear terms uh, now, and not once uh, the fight is fight has starts or is just about to start. It has to be done now, and we've learned that lesson once again uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, whereas the Americans waited too long to make it clear that they were going to do something. Uh, so hopefully we won't have to relearn that lesson. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, there's mixed messaging in Los Angeles about COVID-19 numbers. While the Department of Health appears ready to reinstate a mask mandate, one medical official says it's all media hype. And also in California, a patrol board has approved the release of a former Mexican mafia gang member. Many say he's a changed man, but officials and a former victim's family members have their reservations. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. the West Coast. A hospital official and a doctor have caused a stir in Los Angeles after dismissing new county COVID warnings as media hype. Their stance flies in the face of the county health director's claims. NTD's Daniel Hall has more on what was said. Los Angeles boasted some of the strictest COVID mandates in California and the County Department of Health may be looking to bring them back. But the chief medical officer at the Los Angeles County and University of Southern California Medical Center says it's all exaggerated. It is just not the same pandemic as it was, despite all the media hype to the contrary. And a lot of people have bad colds, is what we're seeing. During the internal town hall meeting last week, Spellberg said that the CCP virus cases, also known as COVID-19, have been mild. Most people are sent home without being admitted. The numbers at LAC COVID positive tests have continued to go up, but this isn't because we're seeing a ton of people with symptomatic disease getting admitted. We're seeing a lot of people with mild disease and urgent care or ED who go home and do not get admitted. Spellberg's comments come after LA County Health Director Barbara Ferrer said in a statement last week that the county is now seeing a high level of COVID-19 transmissions. She suggested that the indoor mask mandate be reinstated at the end of the month. As of this morning, we have no one in the hospital who had pulmonary disease due to COVID. Nobody in the hospital. We have nobody who had COVID-19 disease as we would see in the past. So I guess it is hard to get a little more excited. L.A. County Health Services published a letter on Monday in response to the town hall video. The letter acknowledged that ICU visits for COVID are low, citing jabs as a reason. A former LAC-USC doctor responded, saying that the letter was agreeing with the objective facts your own doctors said, which refute LA Public Health and fairer and make it clear mask mandates are unnecessary. He added, putting spin on it based on fear is unethical at best, criminal at worst. Ferrer said if COVID rates remain high for two weeks, mask mandates may return to Los Angeles by July 29th. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. San Diego, once ranked as one of the safest cities in America, is starting to lose its police force. We spoke to the head of a local law enforcement association to hear where the officers are going and why they're leaving. 
The San Diego Police Department, or SDPD, lost over 200 officers last year, the highest number in a decade. SDPD Sergeant Jared Wilson, who has served for 18 years, told NTD News that a lot of officers are leaving to places where they feel more supported. Actually, last fiscal year, we lost 241 officers. And of those, approximately 100 left due to a vaccine mandate. Becoming a big city cop has become more and more difficult as soft on crime policies have led to a rise in violent crime. Officers are leaving to other jurisdictions where they feel more supportive in the suburbs. Wilson also said that he's never seen crime rates this bad, listing an increase in homelessness, hard drug use, and homicides. We're trying to impact these violent crimes. We're trying to enforce the already huge amount of gun laws that are on the books. The amount of violent crime by repeat offenders is on the increase due to poor legislation from Sacramento, like Prop 47, Prop 57, and AB 109 from the last decade. And our officers don't feel like they're making a difference. The city is considering the PROTECT Act, which will make it harder for police to stop or search drivers and their vehicles. Proponents say they hope it will reduce racial profiling. But some officers disagree, saying it's affecting police morale and hindering their ability to do their job. It's the most anti-law enforcement legislation in America right now. Additionally, it would not allow you to run someone for a warrant that's already been issued by a judge. It would really impact our ability to make traffic stops where we're recovering a huge amount of ghost guns from. And it criminalizes policing in a way that the Supreme Court from both the state of California and the United States has said is completely legal. To address shortages, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria said he's confident the city is responding to officer shortages using a variety of initiatives, including a 10% pay raise in the next year. According to a 2015 FBI Uniform Crime Reporting dataset, San Diego has about 13 police officers per 10,000 residents. By comparison, Los Angeles has nearly twice that per capita, and New York has more than triple. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. California patrol, parole officials have approved the release of a notorious former mafia prison leader. They say he's cooperated with law enforcement for nearly 20 years. Here are the details. California parole officials allowed the parole of Rene Boxer Enriquez, a former Mexican Mafia prison gang leader. Consecutive governors Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown previously denied parole for Enriquez, partly on the argument that he's safer in prison than on the streets. They fear he may be targeted as a snitch by his old affiliates. But Enriquez's attorney says they can't deny him parole based on he might be in danger that's kind of his risk to take. He reportedly revealed the inner workings of large-scale gang associations and informed on individual gang members. He testified for the prosecution on numerous cases. Authorities have taken steps to protect him over the years, even once booking him into custody under a false name on a bogus charge of possessing a swordfish without a license. Over the years, multiple prosecutors, law enforcement officials, and FBI sent dozens of letters in support of the parole, some saying he's a changed man. But relatives and friends of a victim of Enriquez argue that he's still dangerous, based on his past. In 1985, he joined the Mexican Mafia, nicknamed the Black Hand or La M. He reportedly quit in 2002 when he discovered members were killing kids and relatives of gang members. Now at the age of 60, he's currently serving a life sentence for two second-degree murders, multiple assaults, and drug trafficking conspiracy. David Lamb, NTD News, California. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, Netflix stock rallied today despite the company losing nearly a million subscribers in the last quarter. What's its plan to make up revenue? NBA star Andrew Wiggins made his first all-star team and won a championship this past year. Yet now regrets getting vaccinated, the only way to play. NTD's Dave Martin has why. first time ever, Netflix has lost subscribers for two consecutive quarters. Let's take a look at its plan for getting out of this. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Netflix lost nearly a million subscribers in the latest quarter. This is the first time in history it suffered two consecutive quarters of subscriber losses. Their plan? Crack down on password sharing and create a lower price subscription option that contains ads. Our ad-supported offering is an extension of that, uh, you know, sort of pro-consumer wide range of prices that, that will increase accessibility of the service, um, especially in the years to come. Greg Peters is the chief operating officer of Netflix. Peters says that the ads will be sold exclusively by Microsoft, which has partnered with Netflix to create their ad-based system. The two want to create a new ads ecosystem. Let's make advertising part of the, the, the quality of the experience. Um, rather than detracting from it, as well as having a really, you know, strong brand and advertiser kind of focus. Peters says Microsoft has an interest in innovating in the ad space. Microsoft last year acquired a company called Xander, which is an advertising technology company that integrates with all of Microsoft's media inventory. Babur Han is the director of public affairs at Z2C Limited. He believes this is a key reason Netflix chose to partner with Microsoft. All the search, all the news that you see on Microsoft, all the Xbox media inventory that they, that they have. Whenever there's a game uh, event within Activision Blizzard with like Overwatch and things of that nature, they could find ways of having branded integrations. And so Netflix will join that entire ecosystem. Even though Netflix lost subscribers, the nearly 1 million loss was far short of its predicted 2 million. Netflix stock shot up after the report. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And despite the record high prices, real estate is still America's top pick for long-term investing. This is according to a new Bankrate survey. NTD Sharon Marshall has more. For the third time in the last four years, real estate takes first place as America's favorite long-term investment, according to information just released in a Bankrate survey. Bankrate Chief Financial Analyst, Greg McBride. Uh, this is the third time in the last four years and the sixth time in the last decade that real estate has come out on top. Uh, and consistent with what we've found in years past, millennials have the highest preference for real estate of all age groups. I asked McBride if rising interest rates have had any connected effect on real estate investing. It, it hasn't changed how investors view real estate as a long-term investment holding. Uh, we, we see a lot of consistency one year to the next in terms of Americans' preference for real estate uh, as an investment holding for a period of a decade or longer. In the survey, people were asked, for money you wouldn't need for more than 10 years, which one of the following do you think would be the best way to invest the money? Here's how the response panned out. Real estate at 29%. The stock market coming in second at 26 percent, 
cash third at 17%, and gold, bonds, and crypto lining up behind those. You don't have to be rich to invest in real estate. Even for those that are not yet homeowners, you can still invest in real estate, uh, either through real estate stocks or real estate investment trusts. So homeownership uh, isn't the only entry into being able to have real estate holdings as part of a diversified portfolio. Of all generations, millennials had the strongest preference for investing in real estate for money not needed in the next decade or more. That's in contrast to baby boomers who preferred the sometimes volatile stock market. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Is there a sign of relief for crypto? Bitcoin rebounding to almost $24,000 today, the highest price in over a month. But some warn the relief is only temporary. NTD's Phil Zoe has what you need to know. Is the crypto market back? If you're in crypto, this is the time to check that you can actually get your funds out. But Bitcoin is up 20%. Ethereum is up 40% in the past week, according to CoinMarketCap. Actually, a majority of the top 20 crypto coins are up nearly 20% or more. But some are saying it's a false alarm. Bitcoin price is just one number, but the whole structure of the crypto market is an ongoing house fire at the moment. David Girard is a crypto journalist and author of two books, Libra Shrugged and Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. I spent a month writing something like every couple of days about the latest thing that caught fire, you know. <laughs> it certainly keeps the writing muscles working, you know, 2,000 words every couple of days. He's talking about the collapse of crypto companies, such as Celsius and Voyager, which cost crypto investors, including your everyday mom-and-pop investors, billions of dollars. Trading volume is way, way down. A lot of people just got out of the market entirely. They're busy going, how do I get any of my money back? Lead instructor and co-founder of financial education firm Theotrade, Don Kaufman, says the crypto market may go even lower. There has to be absolute, utter despair in a marketplace before we hit a bottom. And Kaufman says we're not there yet. Some people are still buying crypto. What we are seeing right now is people, okay, I think we've actually hit a bottom. And it's the same investors with a little cash on the side that are going back and actually, you know, re-upping. Unfortunately, I think they're going to find in the very near term, there's still uh, some pretty, you know, mm, staggering degrees of risk. Bitcoin hit a 30-day high of around $24,000 today, but it's still down a whopping 65% from its all-time high late last year. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. NBA star Andrew Wiggins, who's a key part in leading Golden State to the NBA championship this past June, says he regrets getting the vaccine. Wiggins made the comments in an interview Monday with Fansided. Wiggins said he didn't like putting that stuff in his body, and he didn't like that it wasn't his choice. He said, I didn't like that it was either get this or don't play. Wiggins relented just before the season started, though, and got the vaccine. The 27-year-old, who was a first-time All-Star this past year, would have been in the same boat as Brooklyn's unvaccinated star Kyrie Irving, who played in just 29 games because of local vaccine ordinances. The 6'7 Wiggins was especially effective in the finals for the Warriors, averaging 18 points and 9 rebounds a game while playing stifling defense against the Celtics. Now heading into the final season of his contract, Wiggins and the Warriors have a big decision to make.
Wiggins has previously said he would like to stay in Golden State, citing the way the organization treats its players. But he'll surely be looking for a pay raise from his $33 million salary. Yet the Warriors are already paying stars Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green more than $100 million a year between them. The NBA season starts on October 19. In college football, Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh was the keynote speaker at a Right to Life event Sunday, according to DetroitCatholic.com. The former NFL quarterback and NFL head coach said he believes in having the courage to let the unborn be born. Harbaugh, who led the Wolverines to a Big Ten title and a berth in the college playoffs, went on to say, in God's plan, each unborn human truly has a future filled with potential, talent, dreams, and love. Harbaugh, who is Catholic, quoted Jeremiah 1.5, which says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Afterwards, Harbaugh, who was named the AP's Coach of the Year in 2021, was asked if he thought his stance would negatively impact recruiting. The passionate coach replied, What kind of person are you if you don't fight tooth and nail for what you stand for? You get to change hearts by fighting what you stand for. In baseball, the All-Star Game last night saw the American League top the National League 3-2, marking their ninth straight win in the series. The festivities, though, were actually highlighted by a pre-game ceremony where the players honored Rachel Robinson, the widow of Jackie Robinson, on what was her 100th birthday. Actor Denzel Washington started it off with a salute to Jackie Robinson and what he meant for the game in breaking the league's color barrier. Dodgers outfielder Mookie Betts then led the players in wishing her a happy birthday. Robinson, who won MVP in 1949 for the Brooklyn Dodgers, retired in 1956. He then passed away in 1972. His number 42 has been permanently retired by Major League Baseball for all teams. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin takes his first trip outside former Soviet territory since the war started with a visit to Iran. He's seeking closer ties with the leadership of Turkey and Iran. And in the UK, the results are in for the race to replace Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Who are the final two candidates? Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Russian President Vladimir Putin met Tuesday with Iranian leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan in Tehran. Putin is stressing closer ties with the two leaders in the face of Western pressure over the war in Ukraine. It's Putin's first trip outside the former Soviet Union since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. He had a face-to-face -face meeting with Turkey's leader to discuss Ukraine's Black Sea grain exports and the conflict in northern Syria. Putin's trip sends a strong message to the West about Moscow's plans for closer strategic ties with Iran, China and India in the face of Western sanctions. His trip comes just days after President Biden visited Israel and Saudi Arabia.
Putin, who turned 70 this year, has made few foreign trips in recent years due to the COVID-19 pandemic and then the Ukraine crisis. His last trip beyond the former Soviet Union was to China in February. And over in the UK, the votes are in. The final two candidates who will continue in the race to become both leader of the Conservative Party, also known as the Tories, and Prime Minister have been decided. Here's 1922 committee chairman Sir Graham Brady announcing the results. The votes cast for each candidate is as follows. Uh, Mordaunt, 105. Sunak, 137. Truss, 113. Therefore, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss will be the candidates going forward to a final ballot of Conservative Party members. Penny Mordaunt, Britain's Minister of State for Trade, narrowly lost by eight votes. She congratulated her true rivals and said, we must all now work together to unify our party and focus on the job that needs to be done. Now, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss will battle it out over the summer in parallel campaigns. Many project Truss as the likely winner, but Sunak said he is best placed to beat the Labour Party's leader at the next election. The final result is due to be announced on the 5th of September, with the winner replacing Boris Johnson the following day. And turning now to human rights. 23 years ago, the Chinese Communist Party launched a persecution against practitioners of Falun Gong, a spiritual practice of slow-moving exercises guided by moral philosophy. In China, those who practice have faced arrest, torture, and death. They are even used as a source of organs, sold for profit in a state-sanctioned trade. Practitioners in the UK walked through London to raise awareness on the persecution's anniversary. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. A parade marching through London. These people are practitioners of Falun Gong, which can also be called Falun Dafa. It's a spiritual practice that includes slow-moving exercises similar to Tai Chi that was very popular in China in the 90s. Between 70 and 100 million people were practicing it back then. But the ruling Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, felt threatened by its size because they had no way to directly control practitioners. Caroline Brossi Yates, a spokesperson for the UK Falun Dafer Association, explained what happened next. Since they couldn't control it, they banned it, decided to ban it. And since the ban, they have uh, persecuted all Falun Gong practitioners in China. So millions, tens of millions of people, families uh, have been destroyed by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so we're here because this persecution continues today and we're not going to let up until it stops. Practitioners of Falun Gong in China have faced severe repression since July 20th, 1999. They are arrested for their belief in the practice, which is guided by three principles, truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. And in jail, they are tortured and some even killed in an attempt to break their faith. Brossi Yates said they raise awareness through events like this parade, as well as seminars in Parliament. There are a lot of grassroots efforts in the UK across many cities every weekend, sometimes every day, trying to tell people about the persecution because it is horrific. She said they also have a global human rights sanction request for Parliament. The request seeks to sanction the Chinese regime and individuals who are responsible for the persecution and for violations of human rights. Among the worst of those crimes is a state-sanctioned organ trade. Practitioners are blood tested and have their organs scanned to create a donor database. 
If a desperate patient needs an organ transplant, they can buy one to order. The matching organ is found within weeks or days, rather than the usual years it can take in other countries. But the patient is often unaware an innocent victim was killed to provide it. The charity ETAC, the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, is working to end the forced organ harvesting. They are made up of medical experts, legal experts and human rights advocates. Their UK national manager, Victoria White, said that thanks to ETAC's work, the government has changed the law to prevent UK citizens from buying organs in China. It was already illegal to buy or sell organs within the UK, um, but now they've added extraterritorial provisions, and so this means it safeguards uh, UK citizens from being complicit in these crimes by going to China uh, to buy organs when those organs may be coming from prisoners of conscience who are, are being killed. The Chinese regime also targets Uyghur Muslims, Tibetans, house Christians and human rights activists for organ harvesting. Researchers estimate that between 60 and 100,000 organ transplants are being performed in China every year, most of them presumed to be harvested primarily from Falun Gong. If the public know about it, if there's enough public outcry, uh, there is more of a chance for reform and change. One member of the public said that people shouldn't be restricted if they aren't criminals and aren't causing problems. He shared why he signed the petition to end the persecution. I'm concerned about individual freedom. I'm concerned about restrictions on freedom. I'm concerned about communistic-type regimes like Russia and China. For practitioners, this is why they raise awareness. They have a simple wish. We want to end the persecution and have freedom to practice Falun Gong in China. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Across southern Europe, emergency services continue to battle wildfires amid mass evacuations. In Greece, firefighters struggled to contain a large wildfire that threatened hillside suburbs outside Athens. And Portugal has reported more than 1,000 deaths due to the current heat wave. NTD's Joy Duguid tells us more. In this neighborhood north of Athens, wildfires burn everything in their way. Homeowners use garden shovels, hoses and buckets to save their properties and possessions from the flames. We have been battling since last night. We saved it at the last minute. The fire engine didn't have any more water and the fire kept reigniting. I had to go put it out myself. Another resident wasn't so lucky. The whole house burned down. Everything was lost. Books, CDs, piano, clothes, icons, photos, files, everything that a person would have. I'm 53, so imagine. At the moment, we are only with what you see here. Hundreds of firefighters and volunteers have been tackling the blaze that began on Tuesday driven by strong winds that caused new fronts to constantly erupt. Authorities said they evacuated nine settlements. In the northwestern Spanish province of Zamora, Emiliano Seed has been tending his vegetable allotment and fruit tree orchard for the last 40 years. But in just a few hours, a wildfire destroyed a lifetime's work. Pumpkins, cucumbers, a bit of everything. There were some fruit trees with lots of fruits. I had been looking after them and watering them, but these are never going to come back. This is completely ruined. Ruined. 
Despite the ruined crops, Seed spent the morning watering with a bucket the little he has left to save. Under tears, he said his future is uncertain. In France, firefighters created huge firebreaks through threatened forests in the southwest of the country. Fires continued to burn across southern Europe, but authorities in France, Spain and Portugal all reported improved conditions with a short respite from severe heatwave conditions. Meanwhile, Portugal's health ministry says that this month over 1,000 people died from the heat. But they expect more heat deaths in the coming days as high temperatures are set to return. Joy Dugid, NTD News. Coming up, the life-sized whale sculpture inside of New York City's American Museum of Natural History gets vacuumed. The tricky part, the sculpture is 21,000 pounds and hangs from the ceiling. Find out more after this short break. The iconic blue whale at New York City's American Museum of Natural History is undergoing a cleaning. The life-sized whale statue goes, undergoes some form of cleaning every few months. He is vacuuming the surface of the whale to remove the layer of dust that's built up over time. And um, it's, a, it's a really big model. It's a 94-foot-long model, which is actual size for a blue whale. And um, he's just giving it a cleaning so it looks its best. It, it's a little disorienting once you get above 20 feet, um, but it's, it's also a lot of fun. Um, since the whale is, is such a strange amorphous shape, one is often disoriented when, when maneuvering around, in and around the area. The entire body of the 94-foot-long whale undergoes a dusting every nine months, and then every six months, the face and the head get dusted. The cleaning tools are an industrial vacuum with a HEPA filter and a long-handled brush. A round brush is used in countered areas like the blowhole, while a flat brush is used over the other parts. The whole job takes a day and a half. The museum says the whale was first installed in 1969 and is the largest model of the largest animal that has ever lived on Earth. The blue whale is made of fiberglass and polyurethane and weighs 21,000 pounds. The whale is suspended by a large steel pipe connecting the skeleton to the ceiling. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.